Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 71, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And normal service is resumed this week. Yes, we actually have a guest. (laughs) Now, uh, if you haven't heard last week's show yet, I know some people do kind of bounce around the episodes or maybe you're new to the show, in which case we'll explain what we do in just a minute. But last week, we actually decided to not have a guest and just have one hour of us guys. And I think it's fair to say... It actually went down quite well. Yeah, there were some really kind tweets and people were just saying, you know, it was hilarious. So bang on. Unintentionally. (laughs) So uh, thanks very much for your support on that, guys. And, you know, I think it will be something we do again at some point in the future. Ravi just had an idea then that maybe we should uh, invite, you know, you guys to ask us some questions that we can maybe answer. Yeah, somebody tweeted this and I was like, that's a really smart idea. Yeah, so... We could get some really awkward ones done. We'll yeah. see. Ask us anything. No hell's barred. Yeah. <laughs> so, Retro hour unplugged. I'm sure we'll do that at some point in the future. But this week, normal service is resumed, and that means we've got a veteran of the video games industry who is going to join us in the second half of the show. Now, it's fair to say, you know, we've had some pretty big names on the Retro Hour podcast over the last like, 18 months that we've been doing this show. Uh, Tom Kalinski, who was the CEO of Sega. Oh, yeah, we've had John Romero as well. Guy behind Doom, obviously, and Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, Lord British, who was behind like Ultima, those legendary games. Scott Adams. Yeah. And the thing is, we've not had anybody from Atari. And Atari is like the biggest games company. You know, in vintage gaming and arcades, Atari dominated. So it's amazing that we haven't covered it. And I'm glad that we are this week. Long overdue. Yeah. And what I think is quite special about our guests that we've got this week. Now, obviously, number one, we are a British podcast. So... It's nice to do it from kind of the UK angle. And also, I mean, you know, when you generally hear stories or you watch documentaries or read about Atari, they always focus on, like, the arcades or the 2600, and that's it. Yeah, or the ET thing. You know, it's the early years that they all focus on, and they don't go on to the kind of later years and when it really kind of mattered for us British guys. We didn't get those Ataris that early on. Yeah, I mean, mean, they were released here, but you're right. I mean, you know, pretty much everyone I knew are Commodore 64s and all that kind of thing. But today... We're going to kind of get the story behind systems like the Atari ST. One of your favourites, Ravi? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You've got one, haven't you? I've got an Atari ST. Yeah. Now, Ravi is a hardened Amiga fanboy. You know. But, but I like I like a system that we're covering, which is the Lynx. Yep. I thought the Lynx was amazing. Ahead of its time. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you consider that came out just like, what, very shortly after the Game Boy, like a year or two after. Yeah. Full such, colour. Yes, such an upgrade, wasn't it, in specs? And also, the ill-fated Atari Jaguar. Oh, the Jag. Now, the Jag, I think, is probably fair to say it's, it has a pretty hard, you know, pretty raw deal these days by most of the retro gaming industry. Um, I think unfairly. Yeah, stuff like angry video game nerds kind of videos and, you know, ripping into some of the titles. I think it's actually got quite a big, good back catalogue, you know. Yeah, there are some very, I mean, you know, it's got my favourite um, console version of Doom, for example, on there. Mm. Um, games like, you know, Alien vs. Predator. Considering before that, you look at the leap over like the 16-bit consoles, you couldn't imagine seeing anything like um, Alien vs. Predator on like the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo. So really, it's a system that's underappreciated. And also, I think a lot of that was to do with a lot of lazy programmers just like sticking 16-bit ports straight onto the Yeah, shovelware. A lot of that went on. But this week, we're going to be joined by Daryl Still. Now, Daryl was the former marketing manager at Atari UK, and also he was the um, product lead on the Atari ST as well. He was the guy that did all the marketing for the Atari Jaguar, launched it here in the UK, uh, the Lynx as well. So he's got a really unique view into that kind of late 80s, early 90s period of Atari here in Britain. Mm. 
So this is going to be an interesting one. It's really good interview. I look at like you know a lot of retro gaming magazines and podcasts and all that kind of thing. I've not really heard a lot of the stories he's going to tell us before. Yeah, totally. And I'm kind of like you know the hardened Amiga fan, <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, Atari's amazing. You know, it's a... you had a bit of a fanboy moment yeah, when we recorded yeah. this. So Daryl Still is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour in around twenty minutes from now. Now, if you are new to the podcast, we come out every single Friday. And before we get to our special guest, Ravi and I run through the big headlines that have been making the top stories in the world of retro this week. And also, we thank you for taking the time and also paying us a little bit of love, dropping a little tip into our tip jar at theretrohour.com. Because without our show donators, you know, we couldn't do this show week in, week out. No, we'd just kind of be in an alleyway with a small recorder or something. You know? <laughs> Homeless. On a phone, yeah. yeah. You know, with big, big beards, yeah. That's it, Thank no studio, much. no. We don't own that much off the show, Robbie, come on. <laughs> so uh, this week we want to say a huge thank you for your support to David Stevenson. Scott Julian. Eric Nelson and Colin Reed, who all made donations to the running of the Retro Hour podcast this week. If you'd like to do the same, all you've got to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com. Little PayPal link there, click it, put your email in, it'll take you five seconds, or you can even donate via Bitcoin now as well. Futuristic, yeah, we've had a few people donating, but we don't know who they are. Because <laughs> it's all anonymous, yep. so there you go. If you want to keep it private, that's a way to do it. Well, I hear you're doing something tomorrow. You're not going to be very anonymous. You're going to be <laughs> out there, Dan. Yeah, well, tomorrow is, of course, uh, Revival 2017. This is kind of the first retro show on the summer calendar because, you know, we do a few of these. Fortunately, Ravi's working tomorrow, so he can't make it. But I'm looking forward to this, actually. I've you know already been to the bank and took out a few quid. I'll oh, be a mug now, yeah. bit, aren't I? <laughs> um, but Joe's coming along as well, who you may have heard on last week's show, a couple of other guys. My car's bust as well, so I think my missus is actually driving me over. Oh, dear, she's going to come with a car empty and then drive home completely full of like old game systems everything yeah so look out for the girl asleep in the corner that'll yeah. be samantha <laughs> so uh but i mean there's been a lot of people on our facebook page who said they're coming along as well so uh i know people like um sam dyer from bitmap books is going to be there oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, chris wilkins you know has done the Commodore 64 and pixels books you're, you're going to do there. a video report yeah but you know whenever i go down there i was trying to take a little bit of video footage and another guy, you know the guy behind the, uh, Steve behind that Commodore story um, documentary? Yeah, yeah. He's coming along, I think we're doing a bit of filming down there too. Could be an interesting day tomorrow, and I know I've already arranged to meet about 10 listeners on Facebook, so... Well, if you see any Vectrex stuff... <laughs> you got your eye on it, Ravi, yeah. yeah. I might just buy one, Justina, out of spite. You should have come, Ravi, look. Uh, tease me. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there'll be a few bargains. Uh, that's one of the reasons I like getting these shows. I mean, obviously meeting up with people's great, but also the prices are often a lot better than you find on eBay. They're really good, you know... Um, I think I saw a Shadow of the Beast t-shirt and this kind of sealed thing and it's usually like I think 500 quid or 400 quid on eBay mm-hmm. and they were selling it for 70. Yeah. I was like, wow. And we got like boxed like, you know, early like 90s games for the Amiga CD32, didn't we? And they were like, what, five quid each? Yeah, yeah. And we were just checking eBay and it was like, you know, 40, 50. You should have bought more. Yeah. <laughs> we're not like Old that. Stock, we're no. not like that. <laughs> so if you're coming along to a Revival 2017 tomorrow, uh, do say hello if you see us around. Uh, tweet us at Retro Hour UK if you are coming down. Now, before we get to Daryl Still, this week's special guest, let's get into this week's news stories. And we start with quite an interesting one about Atari that makes an appearance in a new movie. Well, there's a new trailer out for Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. And uh, I guess everybody's seen it. You know, there's not many people that would have missed this. Well, the original Blade Runner, um, what a legendary movie. Oh, just fabulous, and it influenced so many games. And like Ridley Scott, you know, his, his kind of vision of what the future would look like. And 
the thing about the original Blade Runner is obviously you kind of got that cityscape that you see. You know, it's always dark, always raining, but you got these cyberpunk, like, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah it was one of the, the first real big cyberpunk movies. But also, you kind of see these um, like brands in the background all the time. And there's actually been articles written about the the curse of Blade Runner because um, you know in the original film it was obviously set in the future. It was meant to be 20, uh, 2019, wasn't it? The film um, was meant to be based in. But in the background, you can see billboards for like Pan Am, uh, Bell phones, all, all the bankrupt companies, yeah. basically. <laughs> Yeah. So pretty much everything they got in there, like, you know, either declined massively or gone bust. And Atari is featured in the background in the original film as well. So in this trailer for the new Blade Runner 2049 movie, Atari features in that too. Yeah, and it kind of sounds like the uh, Mercury Music Prize, if you remember that. Anybody that won that would just go into obscurity. Yeah. <laughs> it was... But this is great. This kind of massive... Atari stuff on the side of skyscrapers. It's great. They're still going and they're futuristic. Well, this little still here from the trailer, I mean, it shows like a flying car. Right? Is it flying or is it just going really fast along the road? I can't really tell. But it's, it's probably flying. Yeah, look, it's in the future. It's yeah. got to be flying, hasn't it? Uh, but there is like, you know, two big Atari logos in neon and uh, this car just kind of flies through them in the mist. It's really cool to imagine that Atari will still be around and doing something in 2049. Well, it's, it's, it's such an iconic like icon basically they wouldn't have you know microsoft windows logos on the side <laughs> of stuff but atari just has that really cool look it's called the fuji that's the fuji the, yeah, the okay. atari logo so um yeah i mean it, it's pretty cool to see it in there and a nice little nod you know back to the history of the movie and also i think you know when people see that it, it brings kind of warm feelings doesn't it watching mm. you know seeing the atari logo anywhere and i'm looking forward to the film as well actually i think it's always a bit dangerous making a sequel to such a legendary film it is, but, you know, some some ones have done well, like the Mad Max ones, you know. Yeah, so we'll wait and see. It comes out in October, and then we'll put the trailer in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. What I think is always cool is when people find, like, you know, long-lost projects or, you know, prototypes of hardware. We've had, like, you know, the, um, the Sony PlayStation prototype found recently. You know, kind of stuff that we thought was lost forever and then makes an appearance again. I think that's really cool. And are you a fan of StarCraft? Starcraft, no. Um, I've seen lots of people play it. It's mm-hmm. like a really hardcore real-time strategy. And uh, there's like Starcraft bars in Japan. Even in London, I think there's a Starcraft bar. It just seems far too complicated. <laughs> and kind of you need to know all the keyboard shortcuts. And frankly, it scared me. I saw some videos of guys in Japan like on the keyboards. And yeah, Not I'm going to stay away from that. Yeah. <laughs> well... Unfortunately, it turns out that um, Blizzard actually lost the source code for StarCraft okay. years ago. Now, the game was made in 1998. And randomly, this guy in America was at a yard sale um, going through like a few CDs that he found. And he found a CDR that had written on it, StarCraft Gold Master Source Code. What? <laughs> That's insane. Now, he put this on Reddit. And all of a sudden, as you can imagine on Reddit... All the people in the, uh, you know, the, the gaming subreddit on there are asking him to dump the ROM and share that with people and everything. But as it turns out, he actually got like a cease and desist order from Blizzard's lawyers mm. saying, look, you know, we own this. Um, it contains our intellectual property. And he decided in the end, rather than, you know, chancing it, he'd, uh, he'd return it back. And what he actually got in return for doing that was um, a copy of Overwatch and £250 in Blizzard's store credit. Okay. I thought that was the end of it, you know. But then a lot of people on, on Reddit and stuff were like uh, saying, you kind of got ripped off a bit there. What you had was much more valuable than that. Yeah, that's what, what I was going to say. I was going to say if he just kept quiet about it, he could have sold it off for lots. Because the thing is, with getting the source code for something, 
you can do modifications on it, mm-hmm. and that would be very valuable because I'm sure in StarCraft there's lots of you know competitive people. There's lots of people that want to do exploits and stuff on it. It's not a good thing to do, but you know it's more moral to give it back <laughs> to well, Blizzard. It actually turned out quite well in the end because you know after like this kind of blew up on Reddit, uh, someone from Blizzard actually called him up, uh, managed to get hold of his phone number, which he still doesn't know how. You know apparently, yeah. and uh, they said, "Look, as a thank you for doing this, we're going to take you off to BlizzCon." You know, a big conference that we do over on the east coast of America. He was like, oh, you know, I haven't got the money to fly out or, you know, time off work. So they said, look, all expenses paid. We'll fly you out there. We'll take you out for drinks, get to meet the team. And also they sent him um, a massive box full of Overwatch and all, like, you know, their PC peripherals and, like, pretty much, you know, free Blizzard games for life as well after that. So Yeah, they didn't want that source code to get leaked. (laughs) (laughs) Some people were saying, though, if it was you, would you have kept a copy for private use? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have told anyone. I would have just made some crazy mod and gone online and beat everybody. <laughs> <laughs> How immoral, Revy. Yeah. How immoral. Uh, but, you know, I probably think he did make his own rip of it. But the thing is, if it ever gets released onto the internet now, they know where it came from, yeah, don't they? That's so. it. But, yeah, that's it. Because I'll have a, a direct digital copy as well. So kind of morally, he did the right thing. It's nice of Blizzard to appreciate him and fly him out there and I, stuff. I just find it crazy that massive companies can be so lax. Do you remember years ago there was security guys in the UK and they had like every NHS patient's data on a USB stick and yeah. they'd leave it on like a bus. Yeah, oh. on the key ring or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like awful. Nuts. But yeah, you wonder how it ended up in like, you know, some yard save in the middle of nowhere. It's yeah, like it's 20 years later. <laughs> well, how did these things get out there? Really bizarre. Now, Castlevania is obviously a legendary game um, on the NES and it's just celebrated its 30th anniversary. Oh, wow. I know you and um, Joe are good fans of this. Well, I'm not a huge Castlevania fan. I mean, I have played it. I mean, I mean, the NES wasn't really on my radar all that much as a kid. Like, you know, I met, a, I mentioned it last week's show. I met a kid who had a NES, and that was my first gaming experience. But um, you know, I didn't really know anyone that had one. Really, it's more you know, in recent years, I played the Castlevania games. Probably only in the last like ten years or so. Uh, but obviously, it is a legendary game, and I know anyone that kind of grew up on Nintendo regards this series, you know, with a lot of fondness. Uh, but there is something really cool, actually. It's kind of had a bit of a facelift for its 30th anniversary. So what some guy's done, this is actually more of a mod of a NES emulator. So he's done it on the emulator side. Ah, okay. So what he's done is essentially just ripped out kind of the graphics from the uh, mobile version and kind of backported that to the original NES version. Oh, so he's kind of replaced all the sprites and they've got nicer shaded ones. It looks like it's just going from 8-bit to 16-bit yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, if you want to play the original, like, you know, Castlevania game, as if it was on, like, the Super Nintendo, I suppose, graphically. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it can't be an easy job going through and replacing every single individual graphic for the whole game, though. Well, that's the kind of thing that guys had to do, didn't they? They had to go and get, like, Mortal Kombat and then get it to work on the Spectrum. <laughs> yeah. It would be, like, <laughs> you know, reduce it down so you can still kind of make it out. But this looks really well done. Yeah, and, I mean, it's um, what you essentially do is, you know, you need the original ROM, you know, for copyright reasons. We know what Nintendo are like. And then you run that on the uh, Nestopia emulator and then kind of run this patch on it and it will patch all the graphics in the original ROM. And then when you play it, it'll look like this. That's so. cool. But you can't do this on the original system, I guess, because of the amount of... Colours and stuff. Yeah, I don't think the original NES could handle the colours and, <laughs> colors and uh, graphics on it. But, you know, if, uh, you know, like we mentioned before, if you've got a Raspberry Pi or whatever, I think it's more if you just want to play the original game with a nice facelift on, you know, yeah, yeah. using the original control pad. Like, and all like that skinning stuff. Minecraft or putting new textures on, yeah. Pretty much. Old school skinning, yeah. So there you go. So thank you for checking out episode number 71 of the Retro Hour podcast. If you are going to be at Revival 2017, I will see you there tomorrow. And now we're going to get our nerd on about Atari. 
Oh, God, this is such a good interview. It's, like, really fantastic. I guarantee there's going to be stories here that you haven't heard before. So let's sit back and enjoy hearing all about the Atari ST, the Lynx, the Atari Jaguar, with this week's special guest, Daryl Still. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest, Daryl Still. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on this week. Now, before we get stories about your uh, time at Atari, which uh, you know I'm sure all our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing, um, I thought it might be quite interesting to find out a little bit more about your history. So, do you remember the first time you ever used a computer then, where it all began for you? Oh, oh yeah, it would have been the ZX81, I guess. Oh, no, actually, probably a pet at school, just printing out um, pictures of naked women, <laughs> <laughs> as you did. But the personal computer would have been the ZX81. Um, and uh, yeah, the old uh, silver paper printer and all of that stuff. Um, and then uh, my first first job uh, outside of education was um, selling course books to students at Ren University Bookshop. And uh, when I joined, there was like one little shelf of personal computing books. And when I left, there were three whole bays. It just sort of caught up in that whole explosion. Um, so that was really, you know, I'd never written a line of code before then. <laughs> it was all by default, really. Well, I was kind of wondering what you did on your computer then. Was it mainly games or what, what kind of stuff did you do? Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was, it was was mostly games. But the, the, those were the days when, um, you know, you got the magazines with, with the code in and you just sat down and typed it in to see what happened. And I was never very good at that. It never really worked particularly well. So I guess I've spent my career doing that. I relying on other people to do the code and then me doing the, um, the trying to flog it to people. So did you have quite, you know, a marketing background then or was it more technology that you came from? Um, no, I did. Um, from from the bookshop, I, I joined uh, a publisher called Incentive Software. I don't know if you remember those guys. They did a game called Splat that was quite successful. Uh, Moon, they did official Mooncrestor license, all, all on Spectrum. We started doing Commodore 64 stuff, um, and I was only there about 18 months, um, went to Audiogenic, um, and really a lot of it was, was learning on the fly, but it was more PR and, and, and business and marketing, just doing it as I went along. But when I joined Atari, um, I was joined as product manager for the ST, and they, I basically did a marketing diploma while I was working at Atari. So it was really on-the-job learning. Well, you started in uh, 1988 at Atari. How did you end up getting yeah. that job? Essentially, the company that I worked for, Audiogenic, uh, had a tape duplication facility below, and we used to do all of the duplicate all of the tapes for the Atari XE for the official official games for the old Atari tape systems, um, and uh, I, I built the masters for those to go through the duplication process um, and became very friendly with um, Rob Katz, who worked at Atari at that time in their, in their software team. And basically, they tapped me up. So, yeah, 8th of the 8th, 88. I remember it well. It's a very easy date to remember. <laughs> you must That's have been I... uh, amazed to be joining Atari, you know, with such a big background. Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, when I joined, the, um, the marketing department was, was like over 100 people. When I left, I was the seventh but last person to leave the company eight years later. <laughs> um, but we had, you know, there was, there was some massive ups in that time. Loved the ST times. They were great. Um, and, you know, and had the battles with the Lynx and the Jaguar in, in, under different circumstances uh, when budgets were, were a little more restricted. But, you know, 
I ended up with the grand title of European Marketing Director, but of course uh, that was, you know, there were only about a dozen people left in the company at that time, and my shares were worth about two pence a unit. So, <laughs> well, when when you did start in August '88, I mean, that was kind of you know the Atari ST was on the rise in the UK then. It was like you know one of the hottest products out there. What did you think of the system when you first saw it? Um, it was great. I mean, we we had we had done the duplication plant. We had started to to get into CD duplication. Um, so we'd done a, a couple of the early ST games and a couple of uh, the early Archimedes games and stuff like that. So I knew a bit about the ST and, and was really excited about the, the prospects of it. So getting involved firsthand with it was was amazing. You know, it was a really great to work very very closely with all the developers all the all the um all the games companies that that were developing for it of course we had a very different emphasis in in Europe than they did in the states in the states they were still looking at it as a monochrome business system um and uh we kind of pushed it into gaming and by default also into the music market so one of my one of the biggest successes i guess was was pushing the ST into all the um, music studios around the UK um, and working with some up and up and coming stars like Chesney Hawks at the time, who was massive, <laughs> the one and only. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, we built his studio for him in Ascot, and and he took uh, as part of the deal, he took the links on the road, linked up with his band of, on Breakfast TV, and, and you know, it was all it was all a lot of fun. It was it was really buzzing at the time, and and very exciting. Well, um, it was the kind of hardware that they had at the time you know they had midi ports on the back and it was cubase that was one of the yeah. big so- yeah. pieces of software yeah cubase was was huge and you know I really, I really didn't know what i was getting into i kind of got that gig by default because i was basically playing in a band even though i didn't read music i was just playing in a band uh, and they they just kind of looked at me and said, "Right, um, you're a musician. You can you can do the studio side of things." Like, okay, <laughs> um, and that's that's how how planned it was. And I, I think you know the MIDI port was almost planned the same way. Somebody somebody in the in in Leonard Tremell's team just just said, "Well, let's put this on and see what happens," rather than there be any great strategic thinking behind doing it. And uh, it, it was all kind of by default and, and and flying by the seat of our pants to to a great extent. But as I say, it was a lot of fun. I know around that era, obviously late 80s, kind of like dance music suddenly became big and you had Acid House and all that kind of thing. I know guys like Fatboy Slim got his start on the Atari ST. Did you pay a lot of attention to that market then commercially? Yeah, we did, yeah. Um, yeah, I've, uh, he was... Um, actually, I've still got it here. I'll have to, I'll have to send you a picture of it because I've, I've recently moved house. Um, I've found a lot of my stuff and I actually have uh, the signed cassette of Beats International's won't talk about it single. Oh, wow. But, but signed Norm. Norman Cook. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, well, yeah, well, I was on stage with him a couple of times, running Cubase in the background while he was, he, he launched um, one of the big Atari shows for us at Alexander Palace. So, uh, yeah, we were, we were playing around with that area. Um, also, you know, there was, I don't know if you remember, there's a band called Atari Teenage Riot. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, their manager came in uh, from Berlin, and and we sat down to negotiate that they could use the name, um, and arranged a meeting with them with Sam Tremell back in Berlin because Sam Sam was over at the time. So there was a, a lot of stuff going on. I've, I've still got um, some of some of their music as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody, Brian May popped into one of the Atari things at uh, Alexander Palace with his son, and he was apparently a big user. 
Um, and um, who else? Yeah, there were, there were quite a few. Um, obviously, Jean-Michel Jarre phoned me up once, just on spec, um, to ask some technical questions. Uh, and um, Captain Sensible used to pop in the office all the time in Slough to get his mouse ball cleaned. <laughs> you offered that service as well? <laughs> that, was, that was kind of a personal one-on-one service. But yeah, he, 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 was a, he was a bit of a technophobe. He wasn't totally... He knew what he was doing with the, with the software, but he didn't really know much about the hardware. So it was, it was quite... But you kind of took that all by granted. You know, it, it, at the time, you were just running with it, and, and you felt a little bit swept along in the process. But all these people... It's only when you look back on it and, and think of all the names and that, it, it's, um, you think, oh, wow, yeah, that was, that was actually quite cool at the time. I heard a little rumour that Depeche Mode stole one of your monitors as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's say about that. I had, I had about, I think it was probably one of the last SM124s in, in existence. Um, and um, uh, Paddy McAloon from Prefab Sprout borrowed it to write his album and very, very kindly sent me a signed copy of the album back with the monitor when he finished with it, and then Depeche Mode borrowed it and I never saw it again. Did you buy any of their albums after that? Or? <laughs> no, never liked them. <laughs> so as a project manager for the ST, what were your responsibilities? We, well, myself and Rob Katz put together all of the, um, the packs. So, you know, we pr- we're probably, in some ways, I mean, we're responsible for a lot of the ST success, but we're probably also partly responsible for its eventual demise. So we put together the packs of 20 games. I'll do all the packaging design, you know, for the power pack and the... Do you remember those ones with the nice black packaging and stuff? Yeah. Um, and um, Rob would, would get the titles to, to put in there. Um, and we sold so many. But, of course, the biggest issue was, you know, when someone got 20 free games when they, when they bought an ST, um, they didn't need to buy another game for a long time. So eventually there were rumblings from the development community. Um, and while for a long time, even though we, we were never allowed to acknowledge this at the time, obviously, but even though we knew that the Amiga was like 15% superior in, in some graphical side of things and a little, little bit of the sound side, most people developed their software on the ST and then just ported across to the Amiga. So the, the, it was identical. So the the... God, I hate even saying the word now all these years later, the superiority that the Amiga might have had um, never showed up in, in the quality of software. Mm-hmm. But after the, the, the games packs, then generally ST sales started to dip. The sales of ST games started to dip, even though the hardware was still selling absolutely thousands. Um, and so the development community got together and, and almost formed a little consortium and decided that they would develop on the the Amiga first and port in inverted commas down to the ST and then you started to see the ST version have a, a little bit of inferiority to the Amiga version um, and then word got around and that was that was the first little issue and then of course we had the STM FM to STE compatibility problems um, which was all over the front pages of what was then a weekly magazine mm-hmm. um and um yeah it was that was that was probably the start of the slippery slope for the st well how much of a threat did you see the amiga internally oh yeah we were well aware of it we were well aware it was a good bit of hardware i mean you, you got to remember that that Bogletto and paul welsh who were the kind of the main guys in the uk were um ex-commodore 
so they were they were fully aware um i was kind of head to head with kelly sumner which is quite strange because we're good mates these days but you know we we were head to head on the on the marketing side of things um and uh, yeah it was it was very well recognized i think what we didn't really look at was um was the pc um, as a as a gaming threat, and we actually published PC software. I don't know. If, I don't know if you know this, but we published PC software and Amiga software mm-hmm. under a label called Arc ARC. Um, that was because we wanted to get into software publishing for the ST, but of course we couldn't persuade any developers just to develop for the ST. There had to be a PC and Amiga version, so we we couldn't put out PC and Amiga games under. The Atari label, so we had we created this label called Arc, which was Rob Katz and myself again, uh, and published um, quite a few games under that. How much was piracy an issue at the time? That's a hard question to answer because I've, I was talking about that the other day, um, and in 35 years in the industry, piracy has always been there as an issue. But I have always said, you know, people will always pirate. Um, people pirate now. Um, you've got, you know, companies like G2A and, and Kinguin who I absolutely despise in my current business because they, it's, it's not so much piracy, but, but they, they're just kicking the bottom out of the price of games. Um, and there's always been these issues, but somehow companies have always risen above that and always managed to make a profit. So you will always get people that pirate, same with the music industry, I guess, but you will always get legitimate, genuine customers who actually want the real product. So I think you, you in a way, you have to forget about it and, and just focus on the customers that you can sell to, not those that, that won't pay money, because they'll never pay money whatever. So, you know, we, we, we were quite um, uh, realistic about it, I think. And it was a problem on every like computer platform at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was, is, and always will be. Being based in the UK, how much support did you get from Atari US? Did you have a good relationship with them? Yeah, I mean, they were. it, it was slightly competitive, um, and it was even more competitive, you know, in the Jaguar days when we got into actually production and, and development of titles out of a, a studio-based environment with myself and Alistair Bowden on, on doing stuff for the Jag. Um, but yeah, we always, we always worked really well with them. I mean, so well, I guess that, um, you know, when Bill Raybok was, was running developer relations at NVIDIA, he came, uh, to me and asked me to run Europe for them. So, you know, I couldn't have messed him up that much. I nearly swore then. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a beeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it was fine. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, we, we had, we had slightly different, views of of where the thing was going but that was that was because we had slightly different audiences and they always trusted our judgment and said you know if you guys think that gaming is where you need to push this platform in the uk and france then do so and likewise you know in germany it was a dtp machine um, and they allowed them to do their thing with it so you know they were they were very um trusting of of us knowing our markets, I think the only issues was that you know the U.S. always got priority, and that did become a big issue with the Jaguar when there were big stock shortages um, for the first Christmas of the Jag, and we just didn't get any. We had twenty-five thousand units to to service like two and a half million pre-orders. So, well, the ST was always a lot more popular over in Europe, wasn't it, than it was America? Yeah, it it was. Um, 
you know, I I still think they missed a trick not going down the games route because Atari was a games machine. You know, when when I first started playing games, you know, people played Atari. They didn't play a console. They didn't play games. They played Atari in the same way that a few years later people played Nintendo. It was just the brand name in the same way that you, you clean your carpet with a Hoover. You know, you just used the brand name. So, you know, Atari was a, was a gaming brand. And I think it was a big uphill task for them to try and sell it as something else. Well, obviously, uh, Jack Tramiel and like his sons were running um, Atari at the time. Did he have much to do with the Tramiels and how were they to work for? Yeah, I never, I never had very much to do with Jack. Jack always took a back seat, but Sam was uh, very involved, very hands-on, over quite often, very, very nice to work for, very people-orientated. He would come over uh, and we would all all go out for an evening um, at a pub near Windsor and play darts. Sam loved darts. Oh, cool. And, you know, it got very competitive and everybody, the warehouse guys, everybody was invited and joined in. And and so he he completely included everyone in the company. Leonard was much more technology-orientated, evil sense of humor, really, really funny sense of humor, just just very dark. Um, And I, I never really met Gary. Gary always seemed to, to be a little bit um, kept apart from from the top end of the business. But Sam Sam was the main man at that time, and Sam was, was a really lovely fellow. Did it give it a bit of like a family kind of feel, having having them all running the company? I guess so, but, you know, most people were terrified of Jack. I mean, I, I, I never... I, I bumped into him at a couple of exhibitions, but really that was it as far as I was concerned. Um, you know, he, he did he did run things with, with a bit of a, an iron glove. Sam could be ruthless, but was was much more welcoming to and, and very warm about it. So yeah, there was there was definitely uh, you knew they were in control, but it was kind of felt like a big family. Um, and certainly, you know, the Slough office. You know, we had a very successful industry football team that won a lot of tournaments. We used to travel around Europe. Um, playing football tournaments and I remember you know one tournament we progressed all the way to the final um, and Bob Gledo who was not generally the most generous person he ran a very tight ship with a very tight budget once we reached the final of this tournament just flew all the wives and girlfriends out to watch the final which was you know massively appreciated by everyone but there is a funny story around that as well because <laughs> we were playing in the um, Fortuna Dusseldorf training pitch next to the main stadium uh, and we were on a promise that we wouldn't he flew them out on the Friday the final was the Saturday on a promise that we wouldn't meet up with them on the Friday night uh, we went for an early night because we were focused on the football they went out on the town and ended up sitting in the main Eintracht Frankfurt uh, uh, Dusseldorf game in the stadium watching a professional Bundesliga football match thinking I don't recognise my boyfriend stroke husband and actually these people are quite good and there's an awful lot of fans in here. <laughs> yeah, that could have been a bit awkward, couldn't it, after the game? <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they've never been able to live that down. <laughs> well, you did mention in there about, you know, Jack's kind of outbursts and stuff. I remember there's even a game on the uh, Commodore 64 called Jack Attack um, after, like, his uh, infamous, you know, like, attacks on people. But did he kind of continue that mood at Atari then? Was it kind of, did he rule with a bit of an iron fist? Was there stories about that? There were stories about it. I've thankfully never got to experience it myself, but um, I do know a few people who suddenly weren't there anymore. 
<laughs> for no apparent reason. Not not saying that they were buried in the ground with um, with, with all the ET cartridges, but they just <laughs> suddenly had to leave the company. Well, the Lynx was pretty groundbreaking. Kind of, mm. what was the first time you saw that system like and your memories? I think it, it was... It was hard. I mean, because I saw it as a as a development system, which was you know had wires hanging out and was quite big and clunky, and you didn't really appreciate that because the quality of the games wasn't commensurate with a system that big. So it really only hit me when I held the small handheld device and was playing the game on it, and and then it was was just holy crap! This is amazing. And then when we linked up, you know, when we got Checkered Flag and, and linked up four machines and we were all racing together on four different machines on Checkered Flag, even though the game wasn't actually stunning, the whole experience of having that linked up thing just just was really great. Uh, I, I think it's one of my biggest regrets. Yeah, the Jag was a fabulous, fabulous machine, but in many ways the writing was on the wall with the Jaguar. With the Lynx, when I looked at it and compared it to Game Boy and, and to an extent Game Gear, although Game Gear was a nice device as well, but it could have just been groundbreaking. I think it was groundbreaking in many ways, but it could have just been absolutely stunning if we have had the impetus behind it that we, we were trying very hard to get. I mean, yeah, you mentioned then I remember seeing like the Game Boy, you know, my friends had and then seeing the links in like Dixon's and I couldn't believe yeah. that it had like full colour and the quality of the graphics. It, it mm. really was streets ahead of anything else on the market. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I was mostly focused on, on my job. I didn't allow myself to be a great gamer because you get, if you get addicted into that thing, then you don't do your job properly. But I remember playing clacks on the links and, and just I really had to drag myself away from it really stunning what were the kind of main changes that they made with the Lynx Mark II and were they kind of from feedback from customers and stuff well the, the biggest issue was always battery life um, and Lynx 2 didn't entirely fix that uh, but you know if, in fact if I'm honest I'm, I'm, I'm still a fanboy of Lynx 1 <laughs> yeah I prefer that one yeah just, just from the feel and the, the aesthetic quality of it um, I haven't actually got a Lynx one. Uh, again, this is one of the other things. Is having recently moved house, I've, I've got all of my old consoles and stuff out of out of the um, out of storage, and I'm quite distraught that I haven't got a Lynx one because Lynx two just feels more plasticky and, and less robust. Um, there were there were issues that needed to be fixed. You know, the power supply would break quite easily if you dropped it, and, and it just ate batteries. So th- those were the main things. Um, there wasn't that much different technology inside it. In fact, I think there was hardly any different technology inside it. It was just all about the, the peripherals and the hardware and stuff. So where did it go wrong with the Lynx and Why wasn't it the success that it should have been? I think, quite frankly, we didn't have the money that Sega and Nintendo had at the time. You know, we, we were doing it on a budget. Um, <clears throat> we had a few kind of breakthrough deals. I remember we did a thing with Kellogg's um, with button badges uh, for... 20 of the games where, you know, in, in, the, in the pack of cornflakes or whatever it was, you've got a different Lynx badge each time. But it didn't have the mass market consumer appeal that, that maybe a deal like that needed. But, you know, it, it, was, it was relatively successful. It, it did okay, but it could have been a lot, lot bigger than it was. Um, and again, I mean, people used to criticize the amount of software, but 
the one that I've pulled out of storage, I've got one of those bags and it's jam-packed with loads and loads of different games. So it feels like plenty of software, but maybe there was an expectation for more at the time. Well, it did have a nice library, though. It's, um, I, and I remember kids at school who had, like, uh, Lynxes and Game Boys. But you mentioned the battery issue, and that was, like, it was the same just, you know, with all the systems at the time, the colour ones, wasn't it, that just munched through the batteries really fast? Yeah, it did. And, you know, the, the whole rechargeable thing wasn't really about properly then. Um, and um, I think, we, you know, outside a checkered flag, the whole linked-up thing, which I always thought was one of the major selling features of the Lynx, you know, Link link up with your mates, and that's why we did the Chesney Hawks thing. You know, there was four members of his touring band on the tour bus on breakfast TV with a Lynx each linked up playing games. And and that's the, the angle that I really, really tried to push, but we that didn't get the traction that I that I thought it might have got. You were probably 10 years ahead of the market there, really, weren't you, with, in terms well, of maybe, network playing? Yeah. yeah, maybe that was, that was the case, yeah. People were very, gaming was a very solo experience in those days, yeah. Well, speaking of things that were ahead of their time as well, I mean, the Atari Falcon was a very powerful system, um, you know, for 1992. Were you involved in that project much? Um, not so much. I mean, we had a, a dedicated team um, on the Falcon, and, and they were definitely pushing it outside of the gaming environment. My, my experience and, and everything that I was working on was more games. Um, we did a big launch for Falcon, and it was one of those nightmare experiences where... You know, we had a, a room with 150 chairs in for the press, and the day before we ran through the whole launch thing, and it worked perfectly. And then on the day when everyone was sitting in the chairs, nothing worked at all. Mm. I remember that, and I think I've probably got most of the, my grey hairs are from that particular <laughs> day. Um, but I, no, I wasn't. Um, they, they had brought a team in specifically to focus on the Falcon and, and push it more towards the DTP and and and. Um, small business environment. Because I remember seeing the Falcon and the video playback on that, you know, jaw-dropping stuff. Um, yeah. What did yeah. you think of the system yourself? Oh, I mean, so are you talking about... So there was a Stan Getz jazz track with a, an animated yeah. character in it. Yeah, I, I, I loved that. <laughs> I, just, I could sit and watch that thing for hours and hours and hours, but um, it was, uh, yeah, it was very impressive. But unfortunately, I never got my hands on it that much. <laughs> Except that we'd love to push that to the games, the games market, but they decided not to do that. And I think um, Richard was involved in that quite a bit, um, but they didn't. You know, they 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 never got a dev kit to Jeff Minter. They never got you know the key people that um, should have probably been involved in 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 you know just, it could have been an all rounder. At the time of the Falcon, I think we were really focused on, um, the, I think we called it the National Curriculum Pack um, with the STE and pushing that in to, towards education and stuff. So there were two different, definite different tracks and divisions running alongside each other and we didn't really cross over. Well, judging by the prices that used Falcons go for on eBay now, I, I imagine there probably wasn't that many released onto the market. No. I haven't got one, unfortunately. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be on eBay now. <laughs> about uh, 600 quid, I think, last time I looked yeah, on eBay. A grand, <laughs> yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They were quite a rare beast. Well, why did Atari stop making computers then? I think the ST, uh, the STFM to STE experience, when we lost a whole stack of momentum to the Amiga, 
um, somebody somewhere, and it wasn't out of any meeting that I was in, made the decision to go back to where the company's roots were, which was in console. Well, obviously, the Atari Panther was um, rumored to be the, the first console back on the market. I mean, did, did he see yeah. much of that then? Because I know it obviously never got released, but... No, I mean, Panther was was definitely... Well, Leonard had a couple of pet projects. One was Panther and the other one was the handwriting device. And <clears throat> neither of them ever really saw the light of day. But the Jag was, I think, just, just basically wiped the Panther out of the water as, as, a, as a project. And it was a good decision, I think, at the time, um, even though the Jaguar didn't, didn't have amazing success and a lot of that was down to the IBM chip issues. But as soon as we saw what was on the drawing board with the Jaguar, it was like there's absolutely no point launching the Panther for 18 months and then taking it off the market and, and replacing it with the Jag. <laughs> One of the other things was that we were still doing enormous amounts um, with the 2600 and the 7800 through the catalogs, through Littlewood's catalog and the mail order catalogs and stuff in, in the UK, mostly in the north of England, but they were doing massive quantities of those things, and, and that was still a big signal that, that console gaming was easier, cheaper, less risky than, than the whole three-and-a-half-inch floppy thing. Because they kept the 2600 Junior on sale like into the 90s, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was one of Paul Welsh's pet things. It just, he just kept selling that stuff. It was, it was incredible, really. Um, when did you first see the Jaguar, and what did you initially think of it? We'd heard lots of rumours because we knew there was a reason that, that Panther was being scrapped, but we didn't quite know what it was. Um, and then I can't, I can't entirely remember. Was, I think Bill Raybok may have come over from the states and sat us down and, and just pulled one out and, and said, you know, that he was talking to people like Rebellion. Um, or AVP and uh, Fred for Cybermorph and, and stuff and, and just, you know, they were all in the UK so he wanted our help to to help build up the, the software library and I, um, it was myself and Alistair Bowden at the time and we just sat there with our mouths hanging open. It's just like, okay, this is the type of system we've been wanting to work in since we've started in this industry. But unfortunately, it was, it was coming to the time when, you know, the, the company wasn't cash rich and we didn't have a whole load of money to, to throw at it. So we were having to sell it to people on trust and on the technology. So we could take it to people like, like um, Jason and Chris Kingsley and, and say, you know, just look at this. And they, they got the power. But when you took it to EA, this one, you know, I had the contacts with EA uh, and desperately, you know, sat down with them desperately trying to persuade them to do a version of FIFA for it. Mm. Um, and EA were much more pr pragmatic, and they're like, well, what's your minimum guarantee? How many units are you going to sell? Um, so, and they weren't at all interested in the technology or anything. They liked the technology, obviously, but they wanted to know how many units it would shift. That was all they cared about, and that was a very, very hard sell. And they were quite in bed with 3DO, weren't they, EA? Yeah, obviously, because the Trip Hawkins connection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you were at the launch of Jaguar in New York, um, I heard. So what was that like then? Was that a pretty showbiz affair? Yeah, it was. Um, unfortunately, it uh, you usually bleep here. Pissed or rain the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, we we'd arranged uh, that we were going to fly everyone around New York in helicopters, and we had to scratch all of that because they couldn't take off. Uh, that was the first time actually that, that 
uh, that I, I bumped into Jack Tramell and spoke to him. Um, and yeah, it was it was a really nice event. We took uh, Jeff was there, Jeff Minter. We took Jeff out in, in town, and there's a um, pub in Washington Square uh, that's based on the American Werewolf in in London movie, The Slaughtered Lamb. It's called. Mm. Um, and of course, Jeff with his whole sheep connections and that just sat in that, <laughs> sat in there with his head in his hands, saying, "I can't be here. I can't be here." <laughs> it was quite amusing, but it was yeah, it was a, it was it was a very fun event. Well, bits were huge back then. It was kind of like the bit wars. So, um, mm. how important was the sixty-four bit badge for your marketing? Well, it was very important, um, and I think it, for for me, it was. A major learning curve in in the whole marketing side of things, and I, I see it now with with politics and, and how, you know, I, I always I was always always trying to be really really honest with the messages that I gave, and this was a truly 64 bit system. You know, it had 64 bit bandwidth. It, it was okay. It was two 32 bit processors, but they were processing at 64 bits down the line, and all of the opposition giving their slants that they tried to point to and, and the rumours and the innuendos and stuff. It was the first time, I guess, in my life that I'd really experienced dirty tactics. Um, and that was it was pretty nasty, some of the stuff that was going on around that. You know, that just they didn't have any single shred of proof that it wasn't a 64-bit system, but they would still stand up and blatantly say it wasn't a 64-bit system. Uh, and and you know the followers believed them, and I've seen that you know many many times over the years since then, and, and learned how to deal with it. But at the time, it was it was quite a quite an eye opening thing, and, and in some ways quite upsetting because you know I, I I always told it as it was, and and now I learned how to stay calm and and react to that. But then. It made me angry, and I showed my anger sometimes in in um, press conferences and stuff when when journalists stood up and 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 made that statement. You know, this is not a sixty four bit system, and I'm like, well, prove it. It bloody well is. <laughs> you know, just have you ever seen anything that plays a game like Alien versus Predator that looks like Alien versus Predator? And then, of course, we had the whole experience with Edge magazine giving AVP four out of ten. Um, because at the time there'd never been a game like it. You know, you you had to have twenty things to shoot every time you turned a corner. Mm-hmm. And in AVP, when you turned a corner, all you heard was your own breath. You know, that for me that was like groundbreaking game. Um, but for them, it was like, oh, it's boring. There's nothing to shoot. It's like, do you not feel the fear? Can you not feel your heartbeat? Can you not? <laughs> you know, it, it, I used, to, I, I got really frustrated around that time. I have to admit. Well, actually, you used to appear quite regularly in Atari, like UK magazines, defending the system. I mean, how did management kind of feel about you doing that? Um, I think Fitzroy PR, who were recruited to do the PR, used to get frustrated because they were very PR orientated and it had to be on message and it had to be the corporate line and stuff. But I think actually Bob Glebo, I mean, in fact, I know because I spoke to him about it afterwards. He kind of appreciated me, almost putting myself up as the sacrificial lamb, sticking my head above the parapet and just, you know, saying it as it was. So I didn't get a lot of flack about it, um, apart from, you know, through, through Fitzroy, they would they would bitch and whine a little bit and, and say, you know, you need to rein it in. You, you don't need to be quite so honest. You need to 
toe the corporate line. And I'm like, no, these people need to hear it. They need to hear the truth. <laughs> I was very, very young and naive in those days. Well, it was a kind of a really big change in consoles because there was a lot out at the time, not like nowadays. So um, <laughs> you had competition like the 3DO and CD32. How did you feel about those? I mean, CD32 didn't make that much impact on me, to be honest. Uh, 3DO, I was very impressed when I saw it. The biggest thing was Rob Katz, who was the reason that I joined Atari, had gone to Electronic Arts at the time. And I remember going around his place um, and playing 3DO for the first time and driving home afterwards thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> we, we have some competition here. And I was very, very surprised that that thing didn't go massive. You know, we played, I can't, I can't remember what game it was now, but we played a racing game and on that drive home, you know, we've been playing the game all evening. On that drive home, I, I nearly piled my car because I was driving it exactly <laughs> as I've been driving the car in the game. Wow. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, it was so realistic. That was the first time I kind of thought, okay, the, the 64 to 32-bit thing is not such a massive issue if it's a great bit of 32-bit software. And obviously the uh, 3DO had a CD-ROM as well. I mean, the Jaguar CD yeah. was obviously released, you know, not until near the end of the console's life, but do you think that should have been released earlier? It, it should have been if they could, but, you know, they they had enough issues getting enough of the main hardware out. Um, I love the CD-ROM. Um, I still remember Blind Melon was the first album that I played through it uh, on CD, just music-wise, it was a great audio system as well. You know, I, I never, I never mind the fact that it looked, looked like a toilet seat, to be honest. Um, but we had a whole stream of things. There was that. There was the VR helmet. There was. Um, we had a, a little room in the Atari offices in Slough that was like the small press interview room that we set up to beam onto the walls in 3D. Um, and the, all those experiences, they kept on bringing these pieces of hardware in that were just absolutely staggering at the time, but actually getting them from that prototype state to production or pre-production and then production was always an issue. Um, and it was an issue with money. It was an issue with the compact forming of the, of, of the plastic. It was, there was always issues with every single thing. So it kind of, I got pre-designed to be very, very impressed by the technology but a little bit cynical as to when we were actually going to see it as a as a production model, and the CD player was fell into that bracket, I think. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, Jaguar VR as well, because that was kind of demoed around the time, wasn't it? But obviously, that never made it to market. And others, Missile Command, I think, was the game that they used for it. I mean, did, yeah. did you actually try out the prototype then? And what, yeah. what did you think of yeah. it? I, I was absolutely loved it. And, and the funny thing is, I played it for ages, really, really enjoyed it, never had any of the nausea issues that I now get with Oculus Rift and other VR helmets. So I don't know why. I don't, even now, you know, we've, we've um, in my current company, you know, we've got 150 games on Steam and in the market, and, and we've not done a VR game deliberately because I still don't see a way of making money out of it. But... I don't remember that technology affecting me the way current technology does. Um, it just, to me, it was just a really great way to play Missile Command. You haven't got a prototype in your garage or anything then, though? No, unfortunately <laughs> not, no. 
Well, I know the, the Atari Jaguar. I mean, I, I'm a fan of the system. You know, I've got two of them at home. Um, and, you know, there are games like Tempest 2000, you know, Jeff Minter's yeah. game, and that's incredible. And uh, like you said, Alien vs. Predator, Iron Soldier Doom as well. I think one of the criticisms you often heard at the time was a lot of the games were kind of quick, dirty 16-bit ports. Do you think a lot of developers didn't utilise the hardware properly? Yeah, and maybe that was a, a timing issue and trying to get things out quickly. Um, you know, I hated some of the stuff that came out of the States. Trevor McFur in the whatever it was, Galaxy, that type of thing. I just absolutely despised. And, you know, Cybermorph AVP, as you say, came, came out of the UK, and we like to claim a bit of credit for those. Um, Tempest 2000 is still my favourite game of all time on any system ever. Um, and I don't think that will ever change, to be honest. Maybe with the possible exception of Football Manager, but that's a slightly different thing. Um, and there were some titles just there to, to get the numbers up, but I think that's probably true of any system ever. You know, I, I, I don't think that was exclusive to the Jaguar, and I think the, the top-end quality of the Jag was great. Um, I was working very, very closely with, with Zero Five. Have you played Zero Five? Yeah. Yeah, so we signed we signed that studio. In fact, when I moved from Atari to EA, I tried to tried to buy that studio for EA, um, and that game. I just thought, you know, unfortunately, the one that came out was was never finished. It was never the final game as as we had sat down and designed. But when I played some of the early levels of that game, I was just blown away. So there was there was some great software for the system at the top end, but you know, there there were some dodgy, quick turnarounds at the bottom end. But I don't think that's u- unique to the Jaguar in any way. I just think, you know, that's how systems work. And I, I don't really understand why Jaguar was so criticised for that. Well, you know, speaking of, like, you know, big games at the time, I mean, I'd say the Jaguar's got the best, you know, console version of, like, Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, you know. Yeah. That really showed yeah. the hardware, didn't it? The hardware sang with those games. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, the guys behind it, you know, I know John Romero was a big fan. Um, and uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time on Wolfenstein. It was uh, yeah, it, it really did justice to, to some of the top titles. As I say, we, these days, you know, you look back on the library and, and think actually this isn't too bad. Um, but you know, we I did um, I produced Fever Pitch Soccer with Steve Fitton, who was at US Gold at the time, um, and we did that essentially because EA had turned us down for FIFA and we needed the soccer title. Well, did you have any other favourite games on that system? Well, Tempest 2000, definitely. Wolfenstein. I, I never totally got into Cybermorph, but I loved Alien vs. Predator. But again, you know, for me, um, because I didn't have that much time to play games, there were plenty enough games for me to, to, to be happy with. Um, the, the one that we worked very closely on, which I always loved and think is a hugely underrated game, is, uh, is um, Attack of the Mutant Penguins. Yeah, very surreal game. <laughs> yeah, I think it's totally unique. Absolutely loved working with them on that title. Um, we persuaded uh, Bill Raybock to, to publish it and put, put some money behind it. Um, and I just think it's completely underappreciated as a, a, the type of title that, that when you look at how many other titles you can look at these days and think, oh, that's got a bit of um, uh, Mutant Penguins about it. You know, at the time, there hadn't been anything... About like it ever. A lot of people don't realise Rayman actually started on the Jag, didn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I worked closely with Julian Mercer on at Ubisoft on Rayman, um, and obviously it was held back slightly because I think it was Sony were offering them stupid money not to publish it before they, they did the PlayStation 1 or something. 
but yeah, that was Rayman was was again pretty unique. You know, the fact that this character who actually his arms and legs don't actually connect with his body. That was oh yeah, that's that's a good way of not having that issue of they're not showing a gap. Just show the gap. Well, you once said that um, the Jaguar could have sold twenty times more than you uh, than you were delivered by the American parent company. Do you think they should have concentrated a lot more on the UK and European market? Um, well, I'm, I'm slightly biased, but yeah. I mean, you know, I, I sat in the Slough office when when a mother emptied the contents of her dustbin in our reception area because we'd ruined her child's Christmas because she hadn't been able to get a Jaguar. You know, it was people took it that personally and that seriously, and. You know, they they probably fulfilled expectations in America, whereas throughout Europe, we if they could have got us the quantities, we could have sold them at the time. We we'd done a great job. When you can see, consider that we were pretty much on zero budget, you know, we di- we didn't have a massive amount of money for advertising, hardly anything at all. But you know, we we worked really closely with the press. We promoted it as the system that justified the hardware hype, uh, and people were just gagging for it and then they couldn't deliver uh and then they delivered what they had to a market that wasn't gagging for it then it seems to me yeah i mean obviously it was it was the death knell of of atari at that stage uh, and it was the most frustrating period of my life to be sure it still hurts now to look back but but you know i loved i loved creating the vibe and i I loved what we had as, as a piece of technology just you know, not being able to supply the people that wanted it was was really, really frustrating. We let people know what a great piece of kit it was, um, and we let people know when it was coming. I and mean, that first Christmas, you know, the, the pre-orders were just enormous, and we just couldn't supply. Do you think that's what caused, like, the downfall of the system then, that first Christmas? Yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. Because by the time we started getting units through in the, in the March, um, people had moved on, you know, a kid wanted a console for Christmas. You know, their parent wasn't going to wait for March for that console to come out, so they bought them whatever console was available for Christmas, and they weren't going to buy another one in March. It was too little too late. So, you know, um, we were fighting the losing battle from that point onwards, I think. Well, obviously, Atari at the time weren't in great financial shape. I mean, did they end up losing a lot of money of this project then? I, yeah, I mean, um, I wasn't always entirely aware of... of the issues with the bottom line, but I do know that people were getting laid off and, you know, team sizes were reducing, you know, my marketing team was was slowly whittling away, you know, we were just having to do so much more and and fill in more jobs Um, and, you know, towards the end I I was kind of like a complete all-rounder doing every every bit of the process, which which I quite enjoyed, to be honest, but you, you kind of... When you're working there, this is hard to explain with hindsight, but when you're working there, you just keep going and you just keep doing stuff and you just keep thinking that something will turn around and you've got such a great piece of of equipment to work with that it's going to be okay and you can't actually see or know what the massive issue was. And there obviously was a massive financial issue that we weren't totally aware of. We were just trying to do our job. Um... And towards the, it was only towards the end, you know, when the, the warehouse was empty in Slough and we all moved, you know, we'd been spread out into all different sorts of the building and everybody was towards the end just in one little area that you looked around and thought, actually, we're not long for this world. That must have been pretty heartbreaking those final few months, though. 
that you were there? It was, um, but you know, I was I was in a different place as well because um, my uh, my son, my little baby son, who's now twenty one years old, was born at that time. So I was you know swept away in that that whole thing, and in in my own personal space, I had to then consider looking after my family, and because EA were approaching me and, and giving me offers, uh, you know, I just had to be realistic and, and, you know, however much I loved Atari and however much I would have loved to have stuck around, I, I just had to to bite the bullet and move on. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a very hard decision to make, but in the other way, it was a very easy decision to make because there was no alternative, you know. Well, obviously, the kind of mid-90s was quite a difficult time in the technology industry, and lots of companies went by the wayside around then. I mean, did you kind of keep an eye on Atari then, after you left? Yeah, um, I did. I, I, it's quite funny you ask that, because a friend of mine actually uh, sent me uh, a photo today of a, a T-shirt he's just bought, which was an Atari T-shirt. Um, and the first thing I said to him was, that's the wrong Atari. And he said, What's, what do you mean it's the wrong Atari? Like, the Fuji is above the word Atari. So that's Warner Brothers Atari. With our Atari, the Fuji was to the left of the word Atari. And then obviously in the Infogram Atari, the second day was the Fuji. And he just went, mate, you are such a sad twat. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, yeah, obviously you follow it and the name still means something to me. Uh, and you know, I would love to see it resurrected or somehow be able to afford to resurrect it myself at some point because it is, it is an iconic name in the industry. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had to, well, it's been a long time since, since I worked there, but it's the longest I was ever at any company. Um, and so obviously it still means a lot to me. Um, and, and I've got some very, very happy memories of those days. Well, do you still own any Atari products? Then you mentioned you've got a bit of a collection. What have you got? Well, I've got a, I've got a couple of Lynxes um, in a bag with all the software. I've got a Jaguar with a few cartridges. I've actually got a seventy eight hundred that I forgot I've got um, in a box that I found the other day during the move. And I've got in the loft a Mega STE with Cubase, which I haven't booted up for twenty odd years and probably won't boot up. <laughs> I mean, it probably won't boot up if I tried. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've still got the, the kit. Um, just, you know, I haven't really got the time to, to do anything with it. But I've shown it to my son. I've, I remember when my son and I, when he was younger, we used to play FIFA a lot. Um, and I, I got out um, FIFA pitch soccer and, and showed him it. Um, he was about 16 and he just went, Dad, that's really crap. <laughs> which wasn't the reaction I was hoping for. <laughs> it was good at the time, though. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> well, what are you doing these days then, Daryl? Um, well, for the last five years, um, I've been running my own publishing company, closely back to where I was, I guess. Um, so, KISS, uh, we publish um, independent developers' games. We've got 80 different indie developers around the world, the indie studios, two, three, five-man studios, fairly small studios around the world, um, and we publish their games on Steam, on PC. Um, we're just about to publish our first uh, PS4 title and our first Xbox One title, um, so we're getting back into console. Really very much back to my heartland and what I love, working with developers on, on innovative, creative ideas um, that may be on massive budget or the top end of technology, but, but are just great games. 
Um, we've done a game actually um, called Horizon Shift recently, which really reminds me in many ways of Tempest 2000. Oh, wow. Just massively playable shoot 'em up um, with very similar type of linear graphics. I've done that after five years of NVIDIA, and then we, we uh, ran the international division of the Russian publisher 1C for five years um, and then set up KISS five years ago. So I wish that I'd worked for myself much, much before then, but, you know, that's the way things have worked out, and I love it. I love doing my own thing. Totally free to choose what we publish, what we don't. Some of the titles we publish are extraordinarily bizarre. We're quite, we kind of publish stuff that a lot of other people wouldn't because at the end of the day, there's a creativity behind them. There's an artistic streak, and we, we let the developer have their head. We've never once gone to a developer and said, you want to change that or you want to do that this way. It's like their game is their baby. We'll just put it out and sell as many of it as we can. Great attitude to have that as well. I mean, you've obviously learned that from, you know, your many years in the industry. Yeah, um, and, and myself, I'm a business partner. You know, he he came out of Activision. He had a lot of years of Activision. And um, when we sat down to, to create KISS, we just basically said, we do not want any bureaucracy. We don't want any red tape. We don't want, you know, 60-page contracts. We just want to let the creative side of the industry, and I, I still think, you know, the PCM, the, the, whatever big budgets the, the massive publishers have to develop games, all they're doing is developing the next iteration of, of their next game. And I think the creativity, and this was as much from my years of, of NVIDIA as anything else, the creativity comes from the small teams who are thinking differently and doing stuff. And maybe their game isn't going to be as good as the version of their game that some big corporation spends $30 million on in four years' time. But it's the game that created that game, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm not a millionaire. I'm probably never going to be a millionaire, especially with my Atari shares. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, get a, I still get a satisfaction out of, out of seeing people smile. I've got a... a, a Recently, uh, some friends have moved in my house, um, and there's a, they've got a 13-year-old son, uh, and sitting and watching him play some of our games and, and smiling, you know, means a lot to me. Amazing. Well, we'll, we'll put a link to Kiss's website in our um, show notes as well. Uh, Daryl, it's been amazing getting some stories from, you know, probably the most iconic video games company that's ever existed. So. It's been fantastic. Yeah, we appreciate you joining us this week. Thank you so much. All right, thanks a lot, guys.